actually, can I just check what the next question is just to make sure before it's in my head what you said? <laughs> I just want to check it. Uh, it's 1550. Uh, the questions I've written down in my paper are not the ones I've asked <laughs> for some reason. I don't know why I've done that. Um, that's a real curveball on you. <laughs> Worked for a bit and I've just got off piste really quickly on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> that's just free form jazz interview technique where you've got yeah. no idea what you said. <laughs> um, bold. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Gaps in Knowledge podcast. I'm Will, a historian who knows nothing about geography. And I'm Reese, and I'm a geographer that knows nothing about history. And this week, I'm in No, no, whoa, 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 what? Will, Will, this week is a special what? episode, and it's all geography, so you could be quiet, because on this week's episode, I will oh, plan dear. an eco-holiday with you, have a special interview with Jennifer Uchendo, the founder of Susty Vibes and Teep, then find ways to stop vampires sucking our power. So no impaling heathens? No. And no history. Well, I'll get my colouring pencils out then, I guess. <laughs> okay, Will, shall we go straight into Misconception Corner? Let's go straight into Misconception Corner. Let's do it. Oh, so I've got to say a bit differently, rather than me kind of giving you a question, um, this is kind of, I'm going to, I think you'll like this. So we are um, looking at ecotourism and the expense of it. Okay. Okay, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to read out uh, um, sort of like an, uh, not an itinerary, but an accommodation and what they have to offer. And uh, by the end of it, I want you to try and roughly work out what you think the price of it would be. Uh, It's in British pounds. (laughs) Right. Okay, that's an interesting idea because I I have zero idea of kind of, one of the things that they don't teach you at British public school is how to use money, what money is, how to get on the bus, how to budget or anything like that. So I can decline Latin verbs until the cows come home, but this kind of thing I'm bad at. So... (laughs) For, for what it's worth, for what it's worth, they don't do it at grammar schools either. So okay, that's a relief. <laughs> so uh, the place in question is Banjul, which is the Gambia. Okay, um, it's a seven night stay, and it's at a place called Footsteps Eco Lodge. And this is mm-hmm. uh, for two people, and uh, you get to stay in one of their accommodations called the Roundhouse. Okay, so I'm going to list out a couple of, I would say a couple, quite a, a good list of things that you have uh, at Footsteps Eco Lodge. So mm-hmm. you would have a bathroom with composting toilets and hot shower and high quality mattresses. Uh, right. Breakfast will be included. Uh, right. There is an eco swimming pool. Uh, you have free Wi-Fi and you also have daily room cleaning. But if you want less frequently, you can have that as well if you would decide to once every other day. And that, <laughs> sure. And it also goes for fresh towels daily as well, or less frequent if you prefer. Or less frequently if you're nasty, sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there is a laundry service, a room service, mosquito nets, a uh, room safe as well. You have a wall fan, a 800 milliliter water um bottle of water plus free refills uh as you so desire uh one lunch meal a day that's not included by the way but one lunch meal a day you'd have to pay for on site and also um you can have a starter and a main meal for dinner which you pay for at the restaurant in the um in the facility okay so i think for seven nights that it sounds like a good holiday in my opinion it does sound like a good holiday the composting toilet i'm not loving the sound of i do have to say we stayed in a caravan in the lake district which was a converted american school bus which had a composting toilet and it was the most outstanding place to stay 
except for the composting toilet, because after about two or three days, I mean, as I'm sure you're aware, hot air rises. And when hot air rises from a composting toilet, it carries some stench with it, which is very pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, um, well... I, will, <laughs> I still think you'd like this place, <laughs> despite, yeah, despite that. I mean, yeah. So I've, it sounds like some of the places we stayed in Nicaragua, um, especially with the mosquito nets. Uh, but how much are we talking per night? I, this kind of thing sounds quite expensive. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I do not know what the tourism economy in, in the Gambia is like, but I'm going to guess we're looking at probably at least 120 a night. So okay. that would put us in for about 900, a thousand pounds for a week. So that's going to be my guess. Uh, that's re- I tell you what, right. That's not a bad guess. Now um, I can go through exactly um, the pricing because I was on the website. Bear in mind, this is uh, this is in the, I did this in the low season actually. So it's a little bit more for the high season, but mm-hmm. um, for the rooms and facilities, it's 22, uh, 25 pounds per person per night. So that's 350 pounds. And for the oh, food wow. on site, plus any drinks money, it's the same 25 pounds per person per night at 350. So it puts it at 700 pounds or a hundred pounds per day to stay there for two people. Um, so actually that's, you did pretty well. You're 200 well, pounds over the mark. But that is, that's not bad going. It's like 50 pound a night for, for a bed in the middle of Gambia in what sounds like quite a, f- now, ah, when you say eco-tourist, is this a fancy eco-tourist place or is this a shack? Now, this is a really good question. So you, so this is the, kind of the misconception is that a lot of people tend to think that eco-tourism is an expensive way to travel because it is sustainable. So mm. therefore it must cost more money. If you think of like the bio foods that they have in supermarkets, it's more expensive. Mm. Um, so people think eco-tourism is also more expensive. Um, there are such things as like Five Star Eco Lodge, which have all of that bio stuff and all of the you know renewable energy approaches, um, which are expensive to staying. Um, this, on the other hand, isn't like it is not a shack it's a really it's a it's a five it's got like on TripAdvisor 4.5 or 4.6 rating like it's a good one okay. um but the but it's actually not that expensive uh to stay in i think compared to other well what's other people consider eco resorts to be um the good thing about this footsteps eco lodge by the way is that they are the guy that runs it is a british guy and uh, he's been running it, i think for 20 25 years his name's david i can't remember his surname unfortunately uh but it, what's quite good he, he locally sources everything he's got um all basically 100 renewable they've got rid of all the um, oil generators and, and so on um and uh, it's a big kind of bird watching area as well so that's what attracts mm-hmm. quite a lot of people which is quite nice, but yeah, it's um, it's, it's it's it is little rooms, but I think it attracts the kind of person that wants to stay stay in these places as well, um, mm-hmm. and they also can volunteer to develop some of the areas of the of the lodge as well. Um, but he also pays everyone fairly. He gives them annual leave and he gives them a pension and sick pay and everything. So he does it properly. Um, but of all that kind of chucked in, I still think seven hundred quid for a whole week stay there is actually reasonably valued and 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 considering that some other places which may be all inclusive or other these big five star or even four star hotels you would pay double or triple the price for the same amount of time it Mm -hmm. makes i think ecotourism sound a much more affordable um method of sustainable tourism if people were that way inclined thinking it might be expensive uh, initially it does absolutely yeah and 
in tourism is such a polluting industry but it's so vital for for many many places around the world that every little helps i'm intrigued by the idea of an eco pool though what <laughs> goes around nibbling the skin and <laughs> killing the bacteria i, I see how I, that you worked I used to know the chemicals that they put in, or but it's not. They, it's just I, I can't remember exactly what they put in, but there's no damaging chemicals to the environment. There's, there's I, I wish I knew the chemicals. Um, okay, but it's still chemicals. It's not like it, they... it's some form of chemical that is not detriment to the environment surrounding it. So much so, actually, I think uh, that there's, there's not much in there. Uh, but even the birds dip in to have a drink. They can, oh, they nice. can take some and it's safe for them. That's how mm -hmm. safe it is. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, yeah. So the reason I kind of bring this up is because, you know, the misconception is people think ecotourism is expensive. Therefore, they're <laughs> not, people don't tend to search as that as a sustainable option. Um, on top of that as well, you don't even necessarily have to go to an eco lodge to be a sustainable tourist. Um, you just have to be very conscious about where you are, what you're doing and how you get around. And that's the most important thing, I, I think, to be a sustainable tourist. So how can you get there? In a green way. <laughs> that's the um, problem. The easy way is that if you do fly there, people think that's another misconception. People think flying there is really bad for the environment. Yeah, it <laughs> is. But at the same time, if you select the option to offset your carbon emissions, actually that does a lot of good um, uh -huh. to a certain extent. That does get reinvested into projects which are trying to reduce carbon emissions elsewhere. Um, so that's one method you can do if you want to fly. I mean, the other way is, I mean, people, uh, trains is quite a good one as well um, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of people in one vehicle. Um, so if you can get around via uh, trains, particularly around Europe is a, is a good example of that. Um, mm -hmm. But or so walking. Can... <laughs> I'm not going to walk to Gambia. If I'm honest, it's a, it's a little bit far. <laughs> but the the interesting thing is you kind of, I mean, what with the heat waves across the whole of Europe recently, there is a part of one that says, ah, what's the point? Like no one else is doing anything. I'll just fly all over the world. But actually there are steps you can take that do genuinely help. Okay, Will, so we're going to go into the main part of uh, of our uh, Gaps in Knowledge uh, segment. And I've got something really interesting. I've actually uh, got an interview with someone today, um, which I mm -hmm. think is the first time we've actually had this on this podcast. It um, is, yeah. Yeah, so I, before before we do the interview, I just want to uh, say, um, do you think you have eco-anxiety? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. What does that feel like for you? <laughs> Um, <laughs> crippling panic attacks. No, that's a bit hyperbolic. Um, no, it's, it's always in the back of my mind that kind of when I, I don't know, I open a new pack of butter, um, oh, this plastic's going to go in a landfill somewhere and that can never be used again. Or when I drive somewhere, um, that's burning fossil fuels that will now pollute the environment. It's kind of one of the things, well, the reason why I have it, why, why I feel this way is because there are very few things you could do in the modern world that aren't polluting in some way. And uh, that just means that it's always something that's in the back of my mind. And what can you do about mm -hmm. it? 
So that's the thing. So luckily for you, because you may be a sufferer of eco-anxiety, uh, the person mm-hmm. that we're interviewed may be something, someone that could help you uh, or is doing work with people that have eco-anxiety. So um, her name mm-hmm. is Jennifer Uchendu, and she uh, works in Nigeria um, for a, a company called, or a, an organization, a app called um, Susty Vibes. Um, but um, what I'll do, I'll let her introduce herself now uh, and uh, yeah, take a listen. Okay, so my name is Jennifer Uchendu. Um, I'm Nigerian. Um, I like to describe myself as a sustainability professional and also, you know, a climate activist. Um, I run an organization of over 300 young people in Nigeria called Susti Vibes, and we're a youth-led organization making sustainability actionable and relatable for young people in Nigeria. So, um, as you can see, one of the main things that she actually, she works with people who are, who are young people. So obviously Mm -hmm. we're not, well, I wouldn't say we're young, (laughs) but but she's working with young people in Nigeria, uh, Mm -hmm. particularly championing, um, um, sort of eco-activist and environmental awareness, uh, but also, um, a big link towards, as described earlier with eco-anxiety. That's, that seems like a very, well, an important thing to do because as we well know, um, earning our bread and butter from hanging out with young people as teachers, this generation of young people, they're kind of, they're the doomer generation. They're not, not just Generation Z, but everyone's got kind of a doomed outlook on everything. Mm. Um, so if you can try and help that in some way, then yeah, that sounds like a really worthwhile goal. It is a worthwhile goal. And actually what I've realised I haven't done, we've talked about eco-anxiety, um, but actually I haven't really defined it or really explained exactly what it is. Uh, but luckily Jennifer will give us the answer. I would always say that, you know, it, it's, it, it can mean everything um, or anything to different people, but a, an umbrella definition or a way to describe eco-anxiety is seen as a spectrum of emotions that people experience as a direct or indirect impact of climate change, ecological breakdown, and even biodiversity loss. So because it's a spectrum of emotions, we have... You know, within its emotions like frustration, powerlessness, numbness, guilt, shame, you know, sadness, anger, all in the mix. Even sometimes, you know, people experience hope in different bouts. So it's that spectrum of emotions that, you know, people experience. And it's also important to highlight that it can be as a result of direct or indirect impact um, with these issues. So, um, you know, something as simple as watching the news and being fed with the typical doom and gloom that we are we're now being exposed to can also have an impact um, on any person's mental health and uh, lead them to have that emotional response where you know they feel completely angry um, out of touch with their agency and powerless you know so it's all in that spectrum of emotions Doom and gloom is exactly the the word I was using before. Yeah. So yeah. She <laughs> so hit the nail on the head with that one. It. She has. Yeah. She's hit all of the nails on on all of the heads. And <laughs> and the the news thing is something that I've thought about for a very long time. Um, how do you get your news? Um, often I get it from two places. I often look at BBC, so uh, websites, or um, through Twitter, actually, is where I get a lot of the news from, which is probably not the most reliable source. But uh, have you heard of something called doom scrolling before? Yep. 
<laughs> and this is something which I often quite do is on Twitter, yep. just going through certain horrible stories about the outlook of our lives in the future. And it can seem, but it's addictive, but also depressing at the same time, which those two things should not go together. <laughs> no, they shouldn't. No, it's like you're giving yourself mental alcoholism. Yeah. So, no, yeah. I've, I've tried to stop reading the news. Um, I gave up for like a year and then I realised I had no idea what was going on in the world. Terrible idea. Um, I... I was on Twitter for a long time myself with my personal account until I realized that I was doom scrolling the whole time. Um, and I've, I've tried an experiment this summer because that's the whole point of summer holidays is to a take up new hobbies and b try experiments on yourself because what else are you gonna do uh, <laughs> yeah and this summer it's my new hobby has been drawing uh, which is going very well thank you very much and my experiments <laughs> on myself um, sorry i can take to- that as possibly not going very well <laughs> No, it's, it's going pretty good. Fair enough, all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I got a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain and turns out I can kind of draw. It's nice. Anyway, good that's not what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> it was to not read the news online anymore. And the way that I read the news, because we're in Germany, um, I can't really get physical newspapers, but it's the equivalent, which is through uh, an app that gets all the physical newspapers from the UK in PDF. And so every morning I read the newspaper, but because it's not kind of constantly being shot out of a cannon at me through my phone, it's just reading the newspaper um that definitely helps well that's one of the things as twitter it just goes on there's no end point whereas a newspaper has an end point and i think that's really important with with this kind of stuff yeah Um, and in in between all of the doom there's like cricket as well yeah that's always nice funny stories (laughs) so yeah so um, one of the things, that, so we're talking possibly about a cause of eco-anxiety, but Jennifer does mm. go through um, a, a few other causes of eco-anxiety which are experienced by, uh, by young people. I would almost say, you know, what are some of the triggers, you know, um, because it's from a direct or indirect impact. A lot of um, young people, when they get, you know, when they're exposed to the reality of climate change as a climate crisis, as a climate catastrophe that is looming, it's, you know, impacts their sense of being as it were, because you're thinking if, you know, there are reports saying we have less than 10 years to change the tides on climate action, then what does my future really hold? You know, there's that fear and apprehension. And, you know, that information, that knowledge can be triggering, you know, especially when you see you see it in the news, you see it in papers and reports. And obviously the internet, you know, makes everything extremely polarized and, you know, easy to get to anyone. And then secondly, and more importantly, young people, um, when they put side by side, the reality of governments and, you know, leaders not taking action on their commitments with climate change, not, you know, taking urgent action, I would say. So there's a sense of betrayal, you know, someone calls it feeling eco-gaslighted, as it were. That could be a trigger, as it were, because why would, you know, politicians who get into power make all of these promises, end up not doing it, and things get worse. You know, there are more climate disasters, more people lose their lives and livelihoods. So it has that impact on a person's mental health. 
And then finally, for young people, you know, particularly in the global south or regions where they've experienced climate disasters, there is even, you know, a completely normal and expected emotional responses. So we've seen things like grief, you know, PTSD, as it were, after a flood. You know, I can't imagine what young people in Bangladesh, for example, are experiencing now because there's that fear, a flood that completely wipes, you know, away your your, your household, you know, you, it, it doesn't leave you the same. And, and that's the same way with landslides in Uganda, with flooding, with droughts, and in different parts of the world where there's a direct impact of the climate crisis on the lives of people. However, I have to say that, you know, eco-anxiety is completely normal. It's kind of expected, I would say. You know, you see all of these things happening, you should feel somehow. It's almost like you're not in touch with reality if you don't feel some type of way, some type of fear and apprehension on everything that is happening and how the world is handling climate change in, in general. One of the things I, I noticed when when having this talking to, talking to Jennifer about this is actually her her passion uh, about trying to find a way to solve this problem uh, of eco anxiety for the young people. Um, I don't know if you can certainly feel that that passion behind it and that that drive to make a change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it comes across, and um, she clearly elucidates exactly what we've been kind of fumbling about talking. <laughs> Um, with far less precision and far less accuracy than she does in far fewer words. Yeah, she. Um, this is clearly something that that she believes in, and clearly something that's important. And it's uh, well, I did notice the uh, mandatory mention of Bangladesh as well, which mm. is fast turning from something that was a bit of a flippant joke and is actually not that funny anymore. Um, but also the the fact that she points out that actually you kind of should feel like this, that's quite useful mm. to know because it's not just you. It is actually a really big deal. It is a huge, and I think it's very, and what I like to leave back to at the moment, I know that the heat wave we've experienced so far in Europe could be considered a one-off weather event and we need to be careful not to confuse climate with weather. Um, but it is definitely, uh, people have definitely, I think, raised their eyebrows slightly to go, oh, okay, is this the, the world that we're going to go into in the future where we have more frequent heat waves like this, where even people in Europe are considering having air conditioning fit into their homes, which I don't think is the way to solve the problem at all actually uh, but the fact people are thinking about that it is definitely maybe they have themselves a bit of eco-anxiety because that might be a short-term knee-jerk reaction that people have if they can afford that kind of equipment mm -hmm. yeah but short-term knee-jerk is exactly right that's all you're doing is you're trying to put out the fire by putting fuel on the fire mm. yeah that's not going to help it isn't. And, uh, and one of the things that Jennifer talks about next is she sets up, she sets something up called Susty Vibes. She actually is doing another project after that as well. Uh, but I asked her about, um, all of the inspiration that she had to set up an eco anxiety project. Uh, and this is what she talks about now. Um, so it's the Eco Anxiety Africa project. So we call it TIP for short. And, um, so I always, you know, go back to 2019 when Susty Vibes was about three years old, where, you know, I started to feel really kind of overwhelmed by the weight of the work that we did and how we were pushing, you know, um, a climate, um, you know, a better future, a healthier planet, you know, pushing that vision, doing the best that we could at community level, but 
putting that side by side with the very, you know, gloomy reality that world leaders were just not taking action. Every COP event is almost business as usual. So it became, you know, that realization started to stress me out. And, you know, I, I thought it was just me. I then had, you know, people within our community reach out to me to say, how do you even keep going? You know, some days I don't want to come out to plant a tree because it almost feels like it's pointless, especially when you put that side by side with, um, for example, a government order to cut mature trees in an area because, you know, there's there's some building or development about to happen. And you say, how is this even possible? You know, particularly when you live in a state where the sea level rise and whatnot. So it's that reality started to come. Lots of conversations coming within our community of people saying this is you know this is overwhelming you know you need to be extremely resilient to do this kind of work so at that point i had no idea what eco anxiety was but i knew there had to be a link with climate change and our mental health so we started to do some bit of research, look for what's out there, what's possible. And then later in 2019, we had an event. It was the very first gathering of, you know, we as young people, we invited a mental health organization, you know, that also works with young people to say, let's even discuss, let's have a space to have dialogue about what we're feeling and experiencing. And that was really good for us because what it helped us do was validate this emotion. So we actually weren't feeling crazy. It was almost like a collective. We all were each feeling um, overwhelmed as it were and stressed out and you know some days it's almost like people are looking for that passion and enthusiasm it was going out so while we had that event and you know we held that thought I then traveled to the UK for my master's and um <laughs> when I traveled to the UK, it's almost like I just had peak eco-anxiety because it's like realizing that there are people in other parts of the world who are less concerned because, you know, it might just never impact them the way it impacts us in our, in our parts of the world. You know, it just was very overwhelming. And I guess when you think about eco-anxiety from a climate justice lens, it's even more stressful for, you know, people in vulnerable communities, global south that just don't always have the um, safety nets to support themselves when the crisis hits. And that reality can be really overwhelming for a young person. But most strikingly, I attended um, COP25 in Madrid and, you know, it was my first COP. You know, I was really excited to be there as a young person, but there was just a lot of tokenism and deprioritization, I would say. You know, it was my... my um, my first-hand reality with um, national greenwashing, I would say. You know, there wasn't anything concrete I, I would take back with me, you know, that I learned or I'm excited and hopeful about. So I would actually go back to my room from COP crying and just feeling like I'm in the wrong profession. You know, there is literally no point doing this. You know, these leaders don't care. They're really just about the short-term gain looking after themselves, amassing wealth for, you know, their families. And that was it. That was how I felt. So it was within that um, peak eco-anxiety moment that I had to make a decision. Do I just, you know, leave everything, find my way back to Nigeria and start a new career or a new life? Because I just didn't see the point at the time. 
or do I research these emotions and why I feel so strongly about this, what's happening with me? And I guess with, with choosing the latter, you know, trying to research that, I then had a thesis topic for my master's. And then I just, you know, began looking at eco-anxiety. It was in the UK, I got to find out about the word, you know, Although it, it was used differently, as I've come to understand now, it looked very worse than at the time. But, you know, it checked up with me because I'm like, definitely, I feel this same way. I might not have feelings of shame and guilt as you know, young people in the UK, but I feel definitely angry and powerless sometimes and hopeless. So um, this is definitely eco-anxiety. And um, since 2019 up until now, you know, I've continued researching this and it just made perfect sense to support the young people back home in Nigeria through TIP, you know, to say, let's bring this back home, look at it from an African perspective, create more space and dialogue to, to even explore these emotions and what it means for us as Africans. How can this be linked into climate adaptation strategies? And even more importantly, research this experience. So um, at TIP, we're doing a lot of, you know, pushing out surveys, trying to set up studies, uh, discussion groups, so that we can understand, you know, our, our experience of eco-anxiety, what it means for us, and how it can be safeguarded. I always use safeguarded as opposed to treats, because I don't think it's something that should be pathologized. Safeguarded in the sense that it can be channeled into something positive, yeah? Just like in my experience, I it was... In my peak eco-anxiety, I decided to start TIP, you know, back home. So it can be channeled into hope. It can be used into, it can be channeled into something more productive that can support um, people. So I feel like eco-anxiety is useful in a way because as an emotional response, it helps you, you know, get in touch with reality. But what then do you do with that eco-anxiety? That's where TIP comes in for, you know, the African population. And it's been good so far. Lots of people reaching out, you know, South Africa, Kenya, Uganda, even Cameroon, you know, just finding that this is not something that we're thinking up in our heads. We feel this too, and we, we need that support. We need to explore these emotions further. So you whilst listening to that, you would have heard her referring to TEEP, uh, but just so you know, TEEP stands for the Eco Anxiety Project. Uh, that's that's what TEEP stands for, and they abbreviate right. it to that. That's uh, for any confusion there of, of, mm. of, of listening to that. What strikes me from from that bit was her talking about pathologizing it, um, and and I, I thought that was really interesting and, and very astute of her to point that out because if you think about it, when certainly in Western societies, when you feel down about something or or if you feel anxious, then sometimes it will be treated as there's a problem to be solved, but all too often it will be treated as a medical problem, and therefore mm. you need a medical solution, and of course a medical solution. It can just mean a drug that suppresses you, a drug that stops you from feeling those emotions. When actually, as she says, it can be very helpful as long as you channel it correctly. So if you channel it into sitting on your sofa and eating crisps, as I do, 
not very helpful <laughs> if you yeah, exactly. into funding youth initiatives and actually getting out there. Much more helpful. So well Much more help. helpful. So, but I really enjoyed the fact that she's used the word safeguard. I think it's a poignant way to, to use it rather than saying solution because actually it's just channeling these emotions in the right way to make a difference. And I think that's what she's trying to instill in the youth population of in Nigeria. And I really like the fact that she's gone through this whole journey to get to this point where she feels like this and bringing all of those uh, experiences back to her homeland in Nigeria and putting it in a context or in the lens of, of Nigerians. Because I think that's also really important to do because that's how bottom-up approaches and individualism works. You need to put it in the lens of the native land in which you walk on to, for it to make a difference. And I think that's what um, the experience Jennifer brings back to Nigeria. That's where why this has been so successful for her in Nigeria. Uh, with, a, with a crisis like this, humanity simply has never faced a crisis um, this existential on this stage before. Individual nations have faced crises. Um, civilizations have faced crises, but not humanity as a whole. Um, but we can't deal with things on a species level. That's not how the human brain works. We can't even really conceptualize things on a national level that easily. Like if I told you, you need to go out and solve recycling in Germany, <laughs> well, where the hell would you start? But if I said to you, you need to go out and solve recycling in your building, Fine. It's yeah, it's a much easier tomorrow. task. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's everyone doing the small chunks together. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's how you solve a big problem. So one of the things uh, um, that Jennifer talks about now is some of the recent projects that uh, she's been doing with Susty Vibes, the organization that she's set up and she describes one of them now. Um well, we're about to start one which we're really excited about. For last year last month, that's June, we tried something in our capital city, Abuja, where we had our typical susty party event. So whenever we call people together, we call it a susty party. But this time it was targeted towards tips objectives. So we created sort of like an avenue for people to use poetry to express their emotions and talk about how they were feeling at the moment as it relates to eco-anxiety, but more broadly, because, um, and I'm sure if you've checked that website, you see that we define our environment really as our livelihoods. It's beyond, you know, trees and mountains. It's everyday life for us in Africa. It's our source of income, our livelihoods, our food and whatnot. So people were coming out to use poetry to express their emotions how they were feeling and with more people coming out other people feel validated you know and it was a very interesting way to get young people to share um, some of their experiences and their um, emotions as well uh, yeah so that's one exciting thing we've done our next study would work with um, the older generation in Nigeria so trying to look at um, older people, like elders, people who are 60 plus, and then young people and, you know, um, kind of compare and dig into their experience of eco-anxiety so far. So we think that would be really exciting. Um, yeah, so we're looking forward to that project as well. So one of the things I really like there is uh, the, the susty parties. I don't know if you'd ever want to go to a susty party. <laughs> that's <sounds> pretty good. <laughs> It does. It does. It sounds like such a, I mean, it doesn't sound like a very complicated thing at all, but just having the idea is, is, I mean, that's the important thing and putting it into place. And so it sounds like a really valuable thing because, I mean, especially in Nigeria, um, 
allegedly Shell has basically destroyed the wetlands of Nigeria. Pretty much, and yes. Allegedly. Don't sue me, allegedly. <laughs> um, and so that's a country that has suffered from um, climate change and from uh, ecological collapse in a way that we haven't really had to deal with in, in Western countries. Um, and so putting initiatives into place there to deal with not just kind of the general anxiety of, oh, the world may well end in the next 100 years, but the specific anxiety of Shell has literally, allegedly destroyed my country um, mm. is a, a really valuable and interesting thing to do. Yeah, it is. And also um, this, you know, what I also like about what she's talking about is, is you know, it seems as it must be in teachers. Like it's very an activity for us. Go, oh yeah, write a poem about this and then express how you feel. But actually, that can be really valuable to some younger people as a way to express, uh, to also be creative, but express their deep emotions because poetry enables or fosters that way of writing. And I think that was a really interesting uh, idea that she had there, and, and it seemed to be successful um, because they would then come together and talk about their poetry. So you're kind of you're building skills within the younger population but you're also exploring mm -hmm. some of the future worries that you may have and what we could do to try and solve that. So it's kind of an all-encompassing experience for all of the youth within Nigeria who are part of the Susti parties. And I, and mm -hmm. I really quite like that, actually. It's a really yeah. a really nice it's, approach. It is, absolutely. And kind of writing poetry has seen a, a bit kind of naff and a feat in certainly in England, um, despite the fact that English poets are like amongst the best in the world. Still, it's a bit naff. <laughs> yeah. um, but I remember reading a book, um, a travel book, where the traveller went to eastern Iran and Afghanistan. And the way that a lot of the women there expressed, and, and the young girls expressed their uh, mostly gender-based anxieties and the troubles that they have in a very, very masculine world and a patriarchal society was through poetry as well. And so mm. you'd read the most amazing, moving, emotional poetry written by kind of a 13-year-old girl about how she just aches to be free and that's a really valuable way of expressing these kind of as you say deep and difficult emotions but i think writing and poetry writing is 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 a really good way to yeah to express kind of uh how you feel and um and that's a, a really uh, a positive kind of uh, approach to to um to expressing emotion in a deep way um but i then started to ask um questions about i noticed that she was talking about the older generations and i think that um as she talks about here, her susty vibes, how it's branching out into the older generations as well. And this is what she's uh, talking about now. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's mostly for Africans. So, you know, young people would be our first point of contact because that's what we have experience doing. But we want to be able to work with farmers, you know, frontline communities. And the reason why we're looking at the older generation now is because um, coping and safeguarding this experience of um, eco-anxiety requires some wisdom. So we are hoping that we can get some, you know, coping mechanisms from older environmentalists. Ask them, how have you, you know, been able to thrive and continue your activism as it were in the midst of everything and, and hopefully we learn something. And that's why it's going to be like a comparative study where we transfer knowledge intergenerationally and intragenerationally. 
So as you can, as you can hear, there is this idea of working with a local community as well as a, as not just for the youth of Nigeria. And I think that you know that's really important uh, to also you know make sure that people that may have eco anxiety in the adult population or the retired population also have a, an option <laughs> at least to mm-hmm. to express how they feel and find solutions. It's so I've I've heard I've come across that idea, but from the other side, kind of the the politicians who are in charge now in well and specifically had it in relations to the US where the majority of the politicians who are in charge there are um in their 70s and 80s I think and so the question is why isn't the US doing anything and one of the answers you see is because they're too old to care they Mm. by the time the climate crisis really hits hard um they just won't be around anymore but to come at it from the other angle and say well just because they won't necessarily live to see the worst side of things doesn't mean that they aren't suffering just as much as other as the younger generations so giving them a voice listening to them certainly a good idea then one of the things we we talk about next uh, in with Jennifer is that what actually are the the future solutions to eco-anxiety and then she describes these to her to me well, I know I've pointed that uh, I don't think it's something that should be treated or, you know, made to be problematized, as it were. But it definitely needs to be safeguarded. It has to be checked. It has to, you know, in safeguarding, then you're able to support um, people who need um, more, you know, um, whether it's climate aware therapy or who need further support because it could get extreme. So I would say, you know, to safeguard eco-anxiety, some of the things I'm learning to support people is um, creation of more and more safe spaces for people to talk about these emotions. Um you know, secondly, also having efforts towards mitigating climate change, actually, that should be, you know, the fix, as it were, because if people are triggered by, you know, climate change, then solving climate change should actually help. So efforts here, efforts towards climate mitigation should be amplified. So having that balanced set of communication, particularly with media, you know, you talk about the problem so much, but let's also talk about some solutions, talk about youth organizing, you know, talk about climate adaptation and indigenous knowledge that is being formed every part of the world where people are finding ways to, um, you know, support themselves and also protect the environment. So um, that balanced um, approach. And then, you know, community action should be promoted as much as possible so people don't feel um, individualized in the crisis. We go through it as a community and understand that, you know, it's really a marathon and not a sprint. And it's more about us coming together, finding ways to live with climate change and working together, um, you know, with different actions. One of, the, I, one of the things I do like about this is, is, is community action. And I think that it's a really important um, part of, of, of bottom-up solutions to support not only your community, but uh, all the communities within uh, your uh, your region. And I think that's a really important approach. This idea of pulling together, you know, knowing that everyone's on the same page and everyone's pulling in the same direction. It's a really important uh, part of trying to make a difference, um, whatever the cause may be. And this reminates that so so much about what's happening with uh, teep and susty vibes 
Mm-hmm. And I think I, I had a realization about communities recently, which is that you you kind of think, or at least I certainly do, living in a city, that there isn't really much of a community, um, or or like as old Margaret Thatcher said, um, there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals. Well, that's not actually how communities work, um, and that's not actually how. That's not how anything works. Huh, who knew it? Margaret Thatcher was wrong. But the, um, let's not get started. No, that's a bit, that's, let's not do that one. Jesus that's Christ. <laughs> um, but, but the important thing is a community isn't necessarily where you live. So our community, for example, is our school. Uh, mm. And we, I live, I know, 10k away from school and you live roughly about the same distance. Mm-hmm. But just because I don't live with the people who I work with doesn't mean that that's not my community and the community of the, my neighbors upstairs will be their work and it could be the club that they go to it could be the football team they support your community is just people who you spend time with essentially and you don't have to live right next door to everybody and have a kind of village community to still be able to pull together and do something no, and I think also on top of that, with the advances of, of technology these days, it's easy to have a, a community which is in like ex situ. You could be placed all around the world, and, and you could come together in a very uh, easy digital way. Um, and I think that's um, uh, no, that's caused a lot of good, but of course, that's caused a lot of bad as well. <laughs> you know that, um, but it's definitely um, technology is also helping that as well, uh, and is the reason why I was able to have this discussion and interview with Jennifer actually as well. So that's always a, a another a benefit of this technology. Um, mm-hmm. But it definitely, I do does... still maintain that I will never join a community in the metaverse, though. Okay, You're not going to yeah. get me on the metaverse. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm going to try and get you on the metaverse one day. <laughs> not going to happen. Not going to happen. <laughs> So then um, I asked Jennifer about what the future of climate change is going to be like in Nigeria or other other African nations. Well, I choose to I choose to pick a future of hope. You know, some days are not like that. Some days I'm completely discouraged as I navigate even my experience of eco-anxiety. But I choose to maintain a vision of hope, a vision where young people, um, you know, who are eco-anxious today get into government tomorrow and don't make the same mistakes as our leaders are currently making. I choose to think a future where, you know, there would be definitely more and more innovations that helps us figure out and, you know, beat the time against the crisis. That's my vision. And also that we learn to live with climate change, as it were, where, you know, um, crisis as much as possible are averted, lives and livelihoods are supported so that that destruction is minimal. And then, you know, people have that form of resilience that takes them away from being vulnerable population, you know, prone to disasters and destruction. And they're more resilient um, to the crisis. So, yeah, and also just uh, to, to end the interview, actually, I asked Jennifer um, a really sort of poignant question. I asked her, what message would you uh, like to give to those listening who are worried about the future of, of climate change? And, uh, and, and this is what she said. So I would say, you know, your worry is very valid. We should all be worried. We should all be afraid. Um, But you want to take action with that worry. You want to, you know, do something, even something as simple as talking with a friend about climate change and things that we can do better. Um, It's a step in the right direction. So don't ever feel like you can't do something, you know, do 
make a move, you know, do something towards climate action and hopefully helps you feel better, but also have, you know, that accountability partner, a friend, a family member, being a community of all the, um, also people who are environmentally conscious because it helps you and supports you in times where you feel really low. So yeah, I just want to. Firstly, I just want to uh, thank Jennifer Ochendu, the the founder of uh, Susty Vibes and Deep, the Eco Anxiety um, Project, uh, for for doing this interview. Um, I certainly learned a lot about eco anxiety having this interview with Jennifer. She was very well informed and both drawing her own experience and and put it into action is something which is definitely admirable. And uh, I'm really pleased and privileged to have the com- that conversation with her. And I think uh, I think there's a positive thing coming from here. And I really hope that this is something that, for me particularly as a teacher, maybe you as well, is something actually we could definitely discuss to the students at our school. I don't know if you I- I agree with that. Yeah, I think I, I think so. I think I I had actually come to think of it. I'd never heard of it before um before this interview uh, that you played for me. And even even though when you said do you have eco anxiety at the beginning, I immediately mm. knew what you were talking about. I I still don't think I'd ever heard of it before. Um and and of course it makes sense that facing such a massive catastrophe and a crisis, people are going to have anxiety about it. So knowing that there are ways that you can channel it and that there are things that you can do and that there are other people who feel exactly the same way is always a valuable thing. Okay, Will, so it's number time. And uh, this time Mm -hmm. the number is 33% and it is household electricity use. Okay, so 33%, one third household electricity use. Um, I'm going to say that 33% of household electricity use is wasted on uh, leaving TVs and laptops on standby instead of having them switched off. Oh, do you know what? You're there. That's that's it. Wow, you fit that <laughs> one pretty much on the head. Yeah, that's, serious? <laughs> yeah, that's generally what it is. Oh, it wow. was it was kind of there. That was pretty impressive, actually. I had an extra clue as well. Okay, which would have well, thrown you. It. it would have thrown you well off balance because the extra clue What's was vampires. <laughs> Vampire. Uh, I would like yeah, kind of the sucking power off. Okay, I see what you mean. Exactly. Um, yeah. Can I tell you my thinking? Yeah, please do. <laughs> I thought I'm going to say something really stupid here for comedic effect because there's simply no way that 33% of electricity use can be on standby mode, but oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> but it's, and, and, the, and the, maybe there's a little bit, it's not just standby mode. It's, um, and this is what I just want to go through to explain because it's actually something called phantom energy is what they, mm-hmm. this is. And it's sometimes known as vampire energy, as you aptly described, sucking power out of a device or something. But it's not necessarily devices that have been left on standby it's even devices that are turned off they still draw power out of the plug socket when it's into the wall um Mm -hmm. uh, this was a uh, the reason that we know is actually a study done in usa that 33 percent is actually of u.s households um but i think in any developed country around the world it probably is something similar because we have similar electronical devices and appliances around our homes anyway um so one of the things um I want to do now is uh, I want to go through a couple of um, p- um, power appliances or 
house appliances or devices. And I want you to tell me like what one you think sucks out the most energy when it is off. <laughs> okay. So, right. so the first one I'm going to go with is mm-hmm. um, a videos games console or a, um, a cell phone charger. Okay. Can I tell you my thinking here as yeah. well? Because I remember like two things from my physics AS level. One is don't do physics AS level. <laughs> uh, and the other one is that the, the brick that you have on a plug, the transformer, mm. will continue to draw power in order to transform it into, I don't know if it's from AC into DC or vice versa. But basically my thinking is the bigger the brick, the more power. And um, video games consoles have bigger bricks than cell phone consoles. And I'm guessing by the look on your face that I'm wandering right into misconception. No, you're not. You're absolutely right. No, I'm not. Is that it? You're on fire today with this. No, you're absolutely right. Um, So uh, video games consoles, one, they have the big brick and you're right in saying that they draw power uh, to be able Mm -hmm. to like transmit power. So laptop chargers, a games consoles, that brick is always drawing power. But on top of that, actually, the problem is, is that if you turn, because we want this instant gratification, instant stuff in our lives these days, uh, a games console, for example, people always want it to be updated all the time. So it's always Mm -hmm. left on in the background, even though you've turned it off. So it's always updating if there is one for example um so that's why it's always on in the background to be able to initiate updates um there mm-hmm. are ways apparently you can turn that off but because of the brick which you described which is plugged into the power unit at the back of the console it draws in 63.7 watts of power even though it's turned off <laughs> which is okay. quite a lot of power um, it sounds like quite a lot of power yeah it isn't actually the most though um okay so, so the most actually is is a desktop computer when it's sleeping. So if you put it on sleep mode, it's like one of the worst things you can do. And that draws in 83 watts of power, even though it's sleeping. Okay. Um, but yeah, so and um, all other devices such as televisions, um, uh, they draw in 48 watts of power. Microwaves do. Um, uh, and inkjet printers also do this. Um, there's anything that is pretty much microwaves do it as well <laughs> they do if you have a clock on your microwave it draws in five watts of power because it has a clock on the microwave even when it's turned off right there's no clock moving because it needs to know the time when you turn it back on <laughs> now that's good to know because i like my little clock on my microwave i like like i'm whenever we unplug the microwave to like use the blender or something i get all I tend to an angry kitchen goblin and wow, now i gotta do the time again on the microwave but if it's drawing power you just leave it unplugged yeah. What a waste of my money. Absolutely what a waste of your money, just because you want another yeah. time. I know. <laughs> it's absolutely Exactly. And for us here in Germany, like that money's going well, twenty percent of it's going directly into funding the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I'm not gonna do that anymore. Don't don't thanks. do that. So 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 here's a solution. So anything that's plugged into your wall, technically what you should be doing is unplugging it from the wall once it's finished. I mean that to a certain extent that might be a pain and unrealistic. Um but definitely mm. on some of the big appliances such as televisions, video game consoles, laptop chargers, TV, uh TVs, I said twice probably, <laughs> but um but those kind of those kind of appliances make sure they they are unplugged from the wall uh, 
if you're not going to be using them at all. Uh, at least those mm-hmm. ones, because they zap a lot of power. And by doing that, not only are you saving money, you're uh, reducing your carbon emissions and hopefully reducing the eco-anxiety of people around the world <laughs> in the long shot way I've tried to bend this. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the, if... Okay, you can't get out into your local community and organise like a poetry slam. You can't uh, stop flying because you've got to go and visit your family. What you can do is just flick that little orange switch on the power adapter and turn off your plugs. I think we can all do that. I think we could do that, yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's our, well, it's kind of a special episode really we've done today. It's just been heavily geography. <laughs> it has, but don't worry. I'll get my vengeance in this life or the next, by which I mean next episode. <laughs> it's going to be history heavy where you've done your summer homework. And <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but we hope you enjoyed listening to this slightly different style of episode. Um, and if you would like to follow us on Twitter, you can do it at Gaps Podcast. And we also have a YouTube channel. You can search Gaps and Knowledge Podcast and find us in there. And if you want to email us, as ever, it's gapsinknowledge at outlook.com. And if you want to find us on Facebook, then uh, just search for Gaps in Knowledge. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's it for this episode, this geography-heavy episode. Um, I'll get my history brain on for, for the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'll see you there. See you then. <laughs>